Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this uh, important panel, plenary, uh, recolonizing the academy under a Trump presidency. Uh, I'm Munir Jiwa, I direct the Center for Islamic Studies at the Graduate Theological Union, uh, and I'm honored to be uh, here with you all today and with our illustrious scholars who will help us think through some of the um, issues that have been raised uh, in the last year, but as we'll see, a longer historical durée um, that we are now contending with. I want to first start by thanking the joint uh, four standing committees of the AAR who have uh, come together uh, for this plenary. Um, these are the status of LB LGBTIQ persons, persons with disabilities, the Racial and Ethnic Minorities Committee, and Women in the Profession Committee. So I want to thank them all for this joint effort. I especially want to acknowledge and thank Dr. Nargis Virani, who is the chair for the Racial and Ethnic uh, Minorities Committee, who actually led the four committees together uh, in putting this uh, plenary together, and also to uh, that committee, uh, including Dr. David Sanchez, um, in helping us think through uh, both the title and the description. So um, thank you all very much uh, for this. Uh, this panel will analyze the intensified colonization of academic spaces, both intellectual and physical, under the current presidency. How do we accurately map these changes and negotiate these spaces in an era of national whitelash from peripheral ideological and embodied spaces? How do we contend with the increasing marginalization and targeting of vulnerable populations? What strategies might scholars use to contribute to the ongoing process of decolonizing the academy? What are the potential ramifications of our non-action or complicity in this academic landscape? So I'll, I'll, I'll say the names of all our um, uh, panelists, but I'll introduce them as they uh, begin speaking. Uh, the four panelists today are Dr. Hatem Bazian, Dr. Uh, uh, Jasmine Zeen, uh, Dr. Mel Chen, and Dr. Chanel Smith. First, uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian. Um, he's the provost, co-founder, and professor at Zaytuna College. He is also a teaching professor in two departments at UC Berkeley, the Department of Near Eastern Studies and the Department of Ethnic Studies. He is an advisor to the Religion, Politics, and Globalization Center at UC Berkeley. And in 2009, he co-founded the Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project at UC Berkeley and is editor-in-chief of the Islamophobia Studies Journal and um, several organizations that he works with, including the Islamic Scholarship Fund, the Muslim Legal Fund of America, and Muslim Americans for Palestine, for which he is uh, founding president. He's also the author of numerous publications, um, and I'll just uh, mention two of them here, Annotations of Race, Colonialism, Islamophobia, Islam and Palestine. I'm actually using some of that for my course next semester, so I'm very excited. Um, and another book uh, from this past, from 2016, Palestine, It Is Something Colonial. So welcome, Dr. Bazian. Good afternoon. So we just could get the presentation up. So I'm framing my talk today with a much longer historical durée, and I call it the problem we are all we all live with. And this is again a uh, painting by Norman Rockwell that commemorated the civil rights movement and the challenge of uh, schooling uh, when we worked on desegregating schoolings. And the focus in here is actually to think of the current period 
uh, of Trump, it did not begin in 2016. It's actually a much, much, much longer history. And this is my point that if we're thinking about the contemporary problem, uh, what we need is to have a longer historical lens in analyzing what is taking place. Uh, now, this uh, is a letter that was sent to uh, uh, a Muslim community member. Uh, and again, it looks, uh, it's framing the Muslims again to the children of Satan. And I, I wanted to focus my attention today is to relate to Islamophobia, but also put Islamophobia in the larger sense, and to also speak about what the university's role in challenging and pushing uh, against the rising tide of Islamophobia and otherization. Now, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. And again, this is the 50th anniversary of MLK's speech, uh, Silence is Complicity in Relations to the Vietnam War. And next year, we have his important speech, The Three Evils of Society. And I think it's important for us to frame any discussion in the present with the three evils of society, uh, militarism, materialism, and racism, uh, even though the faces that might be uh, uh, put at the front differ, I think those three fundamental issues are there and I think the university itself uh, have often been complicit in facilitating militarism, materialism, and racism. And I'm here speaking UC Berkeley, uh, where number one, we run two large uh, military uh, labs for the United States Department of Defense and therefore the relationship between militarism and uh, uh, university and academia is very well established. Now understanding the problem, uh, again cartoons tend to give us a very precise understanding of what is taking place. Uh, and what I wanted to point to uh, this claim of trying to take our country back. Uh, the question is that uh, who's making the claim uh, what does that mean to take our country back? And who took it in the first place for it to be taken back? And that language is actually did not only start in 2016, is much earlier and we could think of those issues. Think, focusing on militarism first. Uh, the United States has 55% of the uh, market in the sales of weapons and then you could see the cost or how much of our taxes goes to the uh, military budget. Now I put this because often as a Muslim, you, the microphone is shoved in your face, including some of the grants at the university that wants you to engage on trying to find why the Muslims are violent. And can we locate that DNA that is there, the DNA marker that is essentially the DNA marker that possibly if we find it, we might actually solve the issue. And my immediate response is stop selling weapons to the Muslim world if you're trying to have, have peace. But increasingly just in the last year, we have begun to sell another uh, amount of armament to so an area that is seeking and seeping in blood. And I think the, the relationship have to be established. The main countries that are selling weapons of mass destructions to countries that are having intense warfare, again, these are the countries both in the United States and in Europe. More importantly, the second part on materialism. These are issues we don't discuss. Eight men now own the same amount of wealth as the poorest half of the world. Eight own more wealth than 3.5 billion people. You're not gonna see it on ABC News, NBC, CNN, or any, uh, anyone. 
In the U.S., new research by economist Thomas, Thomas Piketty shows that over the last 30 years, the growth in the incomes of the bottom 50% have been zero, whereas incomes of the top 1% have grown 300%. Uh, and therefore, these are issues that needs to be debated. The university should be discussing this. But again, we have tried to find why our Muslims are violent. Now, to get a longer durée about lynching, lynching in 12 southern states taking our country back. That was the argument and discussion from 1876 in the period of post-Civil War and the period of Reconstruction to 1950, almost 4,000 lynchings took place in the United States. Lynching was southern whites' violent and structural contestation of African Americans' political, economic, social, and religious empowerment post-civil rights movement, post-actually uh, post-civil uh, wars uh, period. And therefore, that contestation in 12 southern states was to actually empty those southern states from the ability of African Americans to have uh, political status, economic status, social status, uh, as well as religious status. It should not uh, go unnoticed that targeting African-American churches have been one of the mainstay of the racist infrastructure here in the United States. And last year, uh, we had a whole slew of targeting of African-American churches as well as Muslim mosques simultaneously. And one raises the question why, because it, was, it is one of the visible symbols of empowerment of African-Americans. Now, Prison and Shrinking Democracy for People of Color, Sentencing Reform Act of 1984. I make the argument that prison industrial complex is also contesting the empowerment of African Americans and people of color post-civil rights movement. By, in, in a large number of states, the, uh, those who are convicted and become felons lose their enfranchisement, and therefore the prison industrial complex becomes a structural disenfranchisement of African Americans, uh, including those areas where actually even to be able to register to vote is actually made very difficult. So, we need to think of imprisonment as structural response to empowerment. It's the main dominant uh, white society wanting to make sure that taking our country back and keeping blacks where they are is part and parcel of the strategy and the prison industrial complex is part of it. Since the shooting of Michael Brown, police have killed at least 2,900 people. Uh, now in lynching period, uh, it was two African-Americans being lynched per week. And today in America, almost every week, two African-Americans get killed by the police. So is there a relationship in, in how we view this structural aspect relative to the police shootings and the violence directed at uh, African-Americans? Now, monetizing fear, because we speak about Islamophobia and how the threat of Muslims, uh, the data from uh, on terrorism from, in the United States from 1980 to September 2004. Again, we look and we see that the Muslims actually are not the majority who are carrying out violent attacks in the United States, but they tend to be overrepresented in media uh, narratives. So even though that a violence that are carried out by uh, members of the dominant society, it does not get the same representation. So in the minds of people, would, would, would you immediately have the association between Muslimness and terrorism, even though that the data uh, proves otherwise. So in here, media discourse, as well as political elite discourse that is monetizing fear, both in here and in Europe, because we look at European uh, uh, figures, it's almost identical. The 
alt-right, even though that term is, I think, is like one of those improved, uh, cleaner term, like you have a new and improved shampoo, is the alt-right, is the new improved shampoo of uh, uh, white racism, right? And therefore, it's actually monetizing fear into votes at the ballot box. We see it in Europe, the KKK, not the KKK, but the neo-Nazi groups that have been discredited from the Second World War are gaining legitimacy by riding the Islamophobic uh, camel, not horse, all the way into, the, into seats of power. In Austria, we see it in, even in uh, the UK, uh, in the Netherlands, and other places. So monetizing fear into seats of power by many who are uh, using fear and monetize it into, uh, into seats of power. Fear drives political debates, and again, uh, almost on an annual basis, we have 32,000 32, individuals that are killed in the United States uh, as a result of gun violence and as a result of mass shootings. There are more mass shootings uh, in the United States than the days of the year. But yet, the same, the, often the excuse that uh, shapes and diverts away from the actual debate and looking at the discrepancy between terrorism cases and uh, gun violence and mass shootings, the emphasis often, again, is on the Muslim subject and because of particular purposes, because it runs the political debate and you could externalize the discussion rather than looking internally in the society. Republicans are using Islamophobia as a wedge issue uh, as a way to monetize it, considering that they have not expanded their base. So the only way they actually could get into seats of power is by monetizing and using wedge issues. We thought, saw that in California in uh, Proposition 187, Proposition 209, and I think this has become a national, uh, a national framing, as well as the Tea Party, which is the extreme right wing of the Republican Party, have utilized Islamophobia as a way to get into seats of power. Islamophobia was also driving force behind the Brexit vote in the UK. So monetizing Islamophobia into, uh, into votes and, and at the ballot box. Likewise, Islamophobia has already tipped toward violence. Uh, we see a number of cases of violence that have uh, been occurring. And what I'm pointing is that the response to Islamophobia relative to universities so far has been timid at best because they tug at almost a discourse that problematizes the Muslim subject. Whenever something happens, is that the Muslim subject is actually engaged as the problem rather than thinking of a solution. I remember one time where we, uh, almost on a daily basis I get some racist attack or some uh, type of Islamophobic attack, was a death threat uh, that was actually directed at an Islamophobia conference that we're holding at the law school. The university actually said, if we're gonna send police, we'll charge you per hour for the police to come. All right, this is at the university where it's a university sanctioned, a university carried out uh, conference that the police actually responded by saying they were in charge us for having a police officer come to secure, uh, to provide some security. And another instance, another type of attack, also with almost a death threat, uh, the university actually handed me a, uh, a, a stress uh, pamphlet uh, as a response to a death threat. So again, uh, because I'm not supposed to be a person that could actually highlight that uh, actually uh, I'm a threatening person, therefore it's illogical for me to actually be threatened. So the response of the university is this. And I would say this is normative of people of color experience. So I'm using my example not to only speak of myself, but African Americans have the same experience. Often when the police is called by African Americans, even on campus, they get arrested because the assumption that they are the instigators of whatever is taking place uh, on a regular basis.
Islamophobia in Palestine, speaking and supporting Palestine in the US and Europe is used to legislate and introduce anti-Muslim laws that regulate Muslim bodies and spaces, as well as a push for massive online surveillance. And I think the experience in here in AAR mirrors or at least moves uh, smoothly in that relations as well. Domestic CVE programs. Domestic CVE programs are driven by Islamophobia, treating Muslims as a singular criminalized class, guilty until proven innocence. Muslims are citizens on probation, unequal under the law. Uh, and again, uh, Muslims don't enjoy the same type of right. They might have the formative right by papers, but they are treated as guilty until proven innocent. And again, I would, I would argue that African Americans receive the same type of treatment on a regular basis. Uh, Muslims are unequal citizens in front, whether it's on the uh, airport, you often are having extra uh, security or uh, free massage service, uh, as well as often in terms of the court, there is a discrepancy in terms of treatment of Muslims at the court level. Institutions behind Islamophobia, and again, it's important for us to actually know the institutions that are fomenting Islamophobia. There's the Southern Poverty Law Center have identified almost 113 different groups that are fomenting Islamophobia. CARE have identified 32 groups that are at the core that spend almost $205 million to demonize Muslims. The reason they are spending this money is for to monetize it into vote because certain people that are funding this have a specific interest. And I would argue that the targeting Obama uh, from 2008 onward, they wanted to use the N-word on him, but they rather they found, found comfort in using the M-word, meaning Muslim. So Muslimness was the signpost for his African-American or his blackness, and on the back of using Muslimness on him, they reintroduced back the N-word. And therefore, those racists that began the campaign against Obama felt comfortably to attack him on his Muslimness as made it that comfortable. And therefore, you get the debate. And the person who challenged Obama on his birthright right now is sitting in the White House. And it's not ironic that move in terms of the challenge to, uh, to Obama. And again, this list is very important for us to be aware of. And as we engage in the campus, it's very important to highlight this to the students. Now, what academic response to Islamophobia should be? Educate and empower. Re-examine your own syllabus. Uh, there is, should, not be no, should be no reason for you to use material that is highly Islamophobic, highly Orientalist, just because you're trying to make an argument. And again, there are many of these Orientalists, many embedded intellectuals that are essentially creating or becoming uh, problem solvers for colonial enterprise, for imperial enterprise, and their material should not, be, should not have a space in our syllabus, and we should go systematically to that. Resist funding projects rooted in otherization, CVE programs. I had somebody that comes and say, I'm doing a project. I want to have an interview with you because we wanted to find out how to actually deal with the peaceful uh, Muslims and so on. I said, I am not a problem solver for colonial imperialist enterprises. You find your answer somewhere else. I will not instrumentalize my knowledge for somebody that is embedded intellectual that is getting funding in order to, again, arrive at the, the DNA of Muslims that causes violence in Muslimness. Again, this is not my uh, interest in order to empower you to do so. Expose and challenge Islamophobia, including protesting businesses owned by the Islamophobes. Develop coalitions, which is very important. Activism, activism to reclaim civil society. 
uh, write and become a source of information across the board. Donate and support institutions and individuals who are being targeted. It's very important for us to, in to empower the alternative. Now, on the last part, uh, we're working on an Islamophobia reporting app. It should be ready in a couple of weeks where we're allowing people nationally to report various aspects of Islamophobia. So if you have an incident, because the FBI records only show a very small, thin layer of what a hate crimes are all about. So this app will be, you'll be able to do it both in Android and on iPhone and should be ready in two weeks. Uh, so to allow our community on a national level to be able to uh, download this information and use it. And then lastly, encourage you to actually uh, access our Islamophobia Studies Journal. It's the only journal uh, globally on Islamophobia. So you could access it on our uh, site and keep in touch with us. Our push against the uh, rising tide of otherization, rising tide of uh, instrumentalizing the university as part of a recolonizing uh, present should be challenged, and the challenge can take place collectively if we create a new horizon for uh, our future. So thank you. much, Dr. Bazian. Um, I think you've raised some really important questions for us to think about uh, in the academy. And as we're thinking about the academy, uh, one of the other things uh, we might want to consider is the different um, possibilities in different forms of the academy. So a public university, a private university, a seminary. What are the various ways in which we can navigate uh, the different spaces? And the institutionalization of our work in these spaces can be different as well. Um, so I think that's important. I think uh, raising the issue, of course, of um, how Islamophobia in particularly is framed um, and using Malcolm, uh, uh, Martin Luther King as an important way to think through militarism, materialism, and racism are really important points uh, that, I need to, uh, that we need to think about. And your line, I think, is really important and it should resonate throughout uh, all our work is how our work and how we as individuals get instrumentalized, how our knowledge gets instrumentalized, and how, how our persons get um, in, uh, instrumentalized for colonial projects. So I think it's an important thing um, for us to remember. So thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Jasmine Zine. She's a professor of sociology and the Muslim studies option at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. Her research and teaching interests lie in the areas of critical Muslim studies, Islamophobia studies, race and anti-racism, post-colonial, anti-colonial studies, social justice education, decolonizing research, and critical ethnography. She has numerous publications, and the forthcoming work she has is uh, part of a six-year project she did with the um, social science, funded by the Social Science uh, Research and Humanities Research Council. It's called SHRC in Canada. It's called SSRC here in the US. Um, and her, the forthcoming book is called Under Siege, Islamophobia, Radicalization, Surveillance, and Mus Muslim Youth Counterpublics. As an education consultant, she has developed award-winning curricula, and she's also worked with uh, the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, um, and the Council on, and the United Nations Education, Scientific, and uh, Cultural uh, Organization. So welcome, Dr. Zine. Thank you very much. 
it's, it's an honor to be here um, and an honor to be invited on this panel. I'd like to thank the organizers for including me. I'd also like to begin by acknowledging the land that we're gathered on here today. As part of the traditional territories of indigenous communities, including the Massachusetts, Potucket, and uh, Wampanoag people, since we're focusing on decolonizing the academy, it's important to acknowledge that the academic spaces we gather on and where our universities are built occupy tradition, traditional indigenous territories where the legacies of the historical disadvantagement of these communities continue. These acknowledgments should be on all of our university websites and on our syllabi if we want to move toward a true recognition of the ongoing colonialities of the present as part of a commitment to an anti-colonial praxis. I also want to acknowledge that my presence here is a compromise. After the election of Donald Trump and his institution of the Muslim ban, many Canadian scholars debated an academic boycott of the United States in solidarity um, with colleagues from banned Muslim countries who could not attend these forums. These were call, there were calls for conferences to be held in Canada so that Muslim academics barred from the US could be included. As a Muslim scholar, I've decided to come to the US only in a capacity where I'm able to critique the current political context, but not otherwise. Having said that, I'm not creating a space of innocence for Canada's politics either. I'll be addressing the topic of today's plenary from a Canadian perspective, examining the impact of Trumpism on the academy uh, north of the border in the form of um, burgeoning neo-fascist campaigns and rhetoric on Canadian university campuses. I want to challenge Canadian exceptionalism and Canada as a bastion of multicultural civility in the midst of growing white supremacy and so-called alt-right movements within academic settings. I'll also focus on the resistance mounted by students and faculty against these developments and the challenges that these contemporary political campaigns pose for left-wing movements to decolonize the academy. So if we go back a bit on the eve of Trump's election, uh, Canada's immigration and citizenship website crashed with the sheer volume of traffic, presumably from Americans looking for an exit strategy should the unthinkable happen. A number of Move to Canada memes were created and circulated, and a Canadian website was set up to encourage American emigration to Cape Breton Island through a website called Cape Breton if Trump wins. And the message was clear. Canada was a place of refuge from the shitstorm of Trumpism. And yet what was not advertised in these Trump travel era uh, ads is the fact that Canada is a country that has a barbaric cultural practices act and security certificates issued under the Immigration uh, Refugee Protection Act where non-citizens identified as a threat to national security can be indefinitely detained based on secret trials and secret evidence held against them. Five Muslim men have been detained under this act since 2000, initially in a federal prison that was dubbed Guantanamo North. In this bastion of multiculturalism and liberal democracy, women in Quebec who wear a face veil or niqab cannot receive social services, take a book out of a library, pick up their kids from daycare, or ride a bus if they cover their face. These are among the Trump light policies of the former right-wing uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper that have not been repealed by Trudeau's government, despite how he is lauded as the anti-Trump with better hair. 
So while the physical borders between nations may be impermeable to human flows and are fortified to shore up the racial fears and xenophobic anxieties feeding white nationalist paranoia, the discursive and ideological borders that underpin them remain fluid and flow across boundaries of time and space with impunity. And this is especially evident with the resurgence of neo-fascist white supremacist and the so-called alt-right ideologies north and south of the border that are emboldened by Trump's rhetoric. The fact that these perspectives are being purveyed you know, from the most powerful office in the world has made them appear not only legitimate but profitable. In the much-heralded multicultural heartland of Canada, there are approximately 100 white supremacist groups operating, and they are becoming more visible on university campuses through recent campaigns that range from posters that say, um, it's okay to be white, to Nazi signs and symbols emerging in a disturbing trend. On January 29th of this year, a 20-year-old male anthropology, white male anthropology student attending the University of Laval in Quebec City walked into a local mosque and shot dead six Muslim men in cold blood after evening prayers. His Facebook page revealed that he was a fan of Donald Trump and had white supremacist leanings. Now, there was an immediate rush to blame this tragedy solely on Trump's Islamophobic rhetoric. However, defaulting on false notions of Canadian exceptionalism glosses over Canada's history of homegrown Islamophobia and xenophobic public policies. Alibis for racism, sexism, transphobia, and Islamophobia are wrapped up in the banner of free speech arguments surrounding controversial Canadian public policies. And these debates are being echoed in university settings in a bid to garner support for these purveyors of the so-called alt-right. And this is all part of a concerted campaign to vilify social justice education on the grounds that it is not neutral. But let's be clear that neutrality is not only a myth, but socially irresponsible when it comes to addressing these kinds of concerns. A recent controversy at my university ignited the right lash of conservative media and academia when a TA, a teaching assistant, was denied a platform for alt-right ideologies to be uncritically purveyed in class. The right-wing media frenzy that ensued quickly framed this as sacrificing free speech on the altar of social justice. Trump has made a successful career of espousing hateful rhetoric that masquerades as free speech, so it's no surprise that neo-fascists and right-wing forces are using this strategy to promote similar political ideologies on university campuses that undermine faculty who they deem to be uh, left-wing radicals. Now, while in the past, Canadian universities have hosted the likes of Ann Coulter, who told a Muslim student that confronted her during a talk to get on her camel and leave, a more recent controversy involves Jordan Peterson, a Canadian psychology professor at the University of Toronto, who, refused, who refuses to use gender pronouns for trans students after Bill C-16 was passed, adding gender identity and gender expression on the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination. He's now begun a campaign to target disciplines such as women's studies, ethnic studies, that he has branded indoctrination cults while rendering his own rhetoric somehow politically innocent despite the growing numbers ready to drink his Kool-Aid. The racial politics of free speech and hate speech need to be interrogated. What bodies are being sanctioned while others speak with impunity? I'll give you a case here in Canada. 
Recently, a Muslim student at Dalhousie University in Eastern Canada was sanctioned by the university um, for a tweet she made about white fragility after experiencing uh, a lot of backlash when she moved that the student union um, should not participate in Canada's 150th anniversary celebrations in solidarity with indigenous people where this marking of colonial time is a further erasure of their presence. So this was a huge crackdown on this student, but compare this crackdown on this student with a simple tweet, uh, you know, for a simple tweet where she acknowledged that uh, white tears were not sacred, but the land was sacred, versus the fact that a virulent Islamophobe, Christine Douglas Williams, has since 2012 been a member of the board of uh, the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. This is a federal body under the Ministry of Canadian Heritage, and her public rhetoric for all of these years has included the following statement, which I'll read. Islamic supremacists will smile at you, invite you to their gatherings, and make you feel loved and welcome. But they do it to deceive you and to overtake you, your land and your freedoms. So again, she sits on the <clears throat> board of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation in Canada. And she's a known associate of the members of the Islamophobia industry in the U you know, US, including Robert Spencer and others that Hatem has uh, outlined. She's a member of an evangelical Christian group and has recently been appointed as senior advisor to Canada's Office of Religious Freedom. So clearly the matter of free speech is selectively policed and circumscribed by the boundaries of race and privilege, where some voices and bodies garner unprecedented impunity. So I want to now just um, list a few thoughts I have about the considerations for decolonizing the neoliberal academy. Um, first, and this is in line with what uh, Hatem was saying, we need to challenge various forms of academic colonialism, including the role of embedded academics who are being recruited to support, as Hatem mentioned, the military industrial complex as well as the security industrial complex by accepting research funds tied to the interests of security regimes that lead to racial and religious profiling. These embedded academics are conscious at times or at times unwittingly are supporting the industries and economies of knowledge that serve imperial interests through programs like CVE uh, I know the American consulate has been sending me uh, by email their curriculum and offering me $2,000 to use it in my classrooms on CVE. And so we see this exporting of this uh, particular paradigm to Canada. Um, also, I want to talk about the curriculum itself. Uh, decolonization, in fact, means challenging Eurocentrism. So the question of who's in your syllabus. We need to decenter Eurocentric knowledge to create a multi-centered curriculum. Decolonizing the curriculum isn't about retaining a Eurocentric framework and then just adding bits of ethnic spice. Decolonizing involves moving aside dominant bases of knowledge and making room for other ways of knowing. Making sure that there are indigenous and subaltern knowledges represented is an important means of decolonizing the curriculum. And finally, I want to mention uh, a resource that is useful and that I put on my syllabus this year, and that is the Campus Anti-Fascism Guide put out by the Southern Poverty Law Center. I included it in my syllabus this year, and I think it's something that we should all talk about including, and also uh, either starting or joining uh, 
the campus anti-fascism groups that are also spreading around campuses. We have them in Canada. I know they exist south of the border. And so that is a space for faculty to begin to have these conversations, share strategies, and to uh, organize around what we're seeing, the assault of, um, against especially uh, social justice um, educators and movements within our universities and challenging the very heart of um, the education that we provide. And I'll just leave you with a cautionary tale. <clears throat> in Canada or in Ontario, we have these uh, what are called OPERG or public interest research groups that are campus-based social justice advocacy groups that are supported by student tuition. And now these have been subject to divestment campaigns mounted by groups like the Young Conservatives who took over uh, the, the PERG in my university. Uh, a few years back, attempting to dismantle it from within. So they actually got themselves elected on the board and then tried to dismantle the organization from within. And now there's a larger movement to try and have students divest the maybe, I don't know, it's a very small amount of money that comes from their tuition to support these organizations, but they're now mounting a concerted campaign to undermine those groups on campuses as well. So what we take from this is that they are very organized, um, these groups, and we need to do the same so we cannot afford to be asleep at the wheel any longer. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Zine. I am, uh, as a Canadian, uh, no longer able to use Canadian exceptionalism either. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I want to just thank you for beginning by acknowledging the indigenous lands that we're on. Uh, we often uh, don't uh, remember because that colonization has become so normalized and normatized. So um, I appreciate that. I think it, um, Dr. Zine's also given us specific things to think about in in terms of actionable items we can use uh, uh, decentering and multi-centering our uh, syllabi, I think, which is really important. Um, and thinking about various other groups on campus. So um, I know the term intersectional is often overused, but I think it is important uh, to think about um, uh, the various ways in which colonization happens of different communities on campus and how they can uh, come together because part of the strategy is often to see these as isolated uh, cases. So, um, and part of the divide and rule strategy is to isolate people who otherwise should be, uh, in fact, coming uh, together. So thank you, Dr. Zine. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Mel Chen, an Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley and Director of the Center for Study of Sexual Culture. Mel is also an affiliate of the Center for Race and Gender, the Institute for Cognitive and Behavioral Science, and the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society, and uh, uh, the Haas Disability Studies and LGBT uh, Citizenship Research Clusters. Um, I had to come all the way here uh, to meet Professor Chen. Uh, we're both in Berkeley. Um, their research and teaching interests include queer and gender theory, animal studies, critical race theory and Asian American studies, disability studies, science studies, and critical linguistics. Chen's uh, 2012 book, Animacies, Biopolitics, Racial Mattering, and Queer Affect, explores questions of racialization, queering, disability, and affective economies in animate and inanimate life through the extended concept of animacy. With Professor Jasbir Poir, Chen co-edits co a book series entitled Anima, highlighting scholarship in critical race and disability post-inhumanisms at Duke University Press. Welcome.
Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks so much to the um, organizers and sponsors of this panel, um, and also to Hatem, um, Jasmine, Chanel, and Munir, um, and all of you in the audience for being part of this conversation. Um, this is a 50-foot conversation, but I hope it's still a conversation. Uh, my, my 12 minutes, oh, 15 minutes, will be spent in the hopes of humbly complimenting my colleagues in um, choosing to read microcosms, looking more at the re and maybe less at the long durée for the purposes of illustration of some goings-on at the actual space of my campus, um, also UC Berkeley that I have the privilege of sharing with Hatem Bazian. This overlaps with what has happened elsewhere, but has also staged a representation for the politics of the public university. And I want to acknowledge the likely difficulty, as much as we might like to achieve it, of a universally held, unified framework for what is and has been happening. Indeed, consensus is important for various kinds of action, but can also become a mechanism for erasure. When and what draws the lines around an age of Trump when there are continuities to map against, say, um, an intensification of fas fascist energies? What is the relationship between neoliberalism and colonialism? I think those of us at Berkeley have had rife occasion to build an analysis of the neoliberal reorganization of the university, uh, at least in the last 10 years or so, and it's a recent history of devastating ironies. But going small, I wanted to tell a recent story or two about the UC Berkeley campus and particularly how they involve affective politics and various forms or even genres of displacement of otherwise legible taxonomies. I think these go, go hand in hand. And displacement here, though I have not thought this fully through in all of its consequences, is meant here to echo both a physical strategy of settler colonialism and also a conceptual strategy of retooling the instruments of governance, shared recognition, and affect as a longtime colonial strategy. One, affective politics, starting with a seemingly lighthearted story as a kind of diagnostic. Recently, I was texting with a colleague who was putting together a book event. We thought how lovely it would be for the, that combination of people to think and be together. In closing, she sent me a poop emoji and then a flame emoji, and I wasn't sure why she did that, but I replied to this invitation with my own gregarious sequence. In order, I sent her the following emojis, a joyful nerd with glasses, a robot head with a fixed linear smile, an expressionless poop, a broadly smiling clown, and a purple vampire bearing exposed teeth. My colleague responded, Clown between, clown between poop and sad purple devil makes so much sense to me. I feel like this is the evolutionary trajectory of academics captured in emoji lexicon. And I felt, yes, the nerd being the love of a question and the challenge of inquiry, if perhaps also lost in the world. The robot being a kind of faux cheerful response to the institutional demand for its mechanistic perpetuation the poop being the expressionless realization of the depths of waste, financial, intellectual, spiritual, and of life itself. The clown being smiling entertainment and the affective politics of teaching to the dollar. I'm thinking here of an article by Kira Hall and Donna Goldstein on the hands of Donald Trump that assesses his success as an entertainer, invalidating and displacing legitimate questions about governance and propriety. Here we have, then, the winning of clownish buffoonery and perhaps indebtedness over even the jazz hands that are increasingly asked of us teachers. 
Finally, the purple vampire, which I'll return to later. So even the comment value of these emojis as feelings about something may obscure the ways one is made to embody feeling. That is, the ubiquitous and potent role of an affective, affective politics of the academy, one that works to transparently assure its recolonization. I'm teaching a class called What is Queer Cultural Production? That ends with a question mark that interrogates the cultural productions of a homonormative celebratory white queer nationalism. On Thursday, because of wanting to involve my students in what I do, I told them I was coming here, and I asked them how they might respond to a prompt like this panel's, saying that I might be able to include their responses on a piece of paper I passed around. Um, I'll mention that one person who did not sign their entry spoke of the selective containment of sanctioned terrorism studies in a disciplinary part of the university, such as international studies and political science that serves to justify US foreign policy along lines of neocolonialism and Orientalism. Another named Edie Sussman wrote, when we as students speak up to demand better from the academy, we are so often told to be grateful for what we have and not risk having it taken away. I'm thinking specifically of, of how, when forced to host a violent speaker, we were told to be grateful for free speech and then threatened by Trump himself with the withdrawal of public funding if our school did not comply. The, in closing, she wrote, there are two new tools and mechanisms in place which seem to aim to keep us docile and ready to be recolonized. Sussman speaks directly to the affective politics of docility that has a long history in coloniality, but also the sense that she is being prepared for recolonization, a kind of future present of colonial affect that is ever tied to questions of capital. The campus allegiance to militarization not only includes the presumed and thereby effective weaponization of our students' own backpacks and bodies, as occurred September 14th, in order to welcome the spectators of a talk by a conservative speaker, Ben Shapiro, who appeared in the views of my colleagues who attended not to have had the benefit of exposure to any of our scholarship. This welcome of Shapiro and his audience, whatever their politics, amounted to the sectioning off of a central portion of campus that included the Chavez Student Center, the Disabled Students Program, and the MLK Student Union, places to which students go precisely for respite and relief. The sums spent on this effort have been endlessly cited. But this militarization arguably also includes the permanent redirection, i.e. the displacement, of general monies from our campus's basic funds, 20 million this year alone, which is 40 times what was spent on the campus security for this event, towards competitive athletics, making secure what was formerly a habit of yearly expropriation to stop a leaky gap amidst increasingly unsustainable cuts to teaching and research programs. Recently, we received a campus email that opened with, quote, as we approach the yearly rituals of the big game and the holidays, we have an opportunity to reflect on the fall semester. Couched in this email is her disclosure of a commitment of campus funds to sustain the seismic retrofit of the stadium, uh, the debt thereof. Um, this commitment to intercollegiate athletics is the only named group among the diverse groups she mentions in the context of community building, and I think that is not an accident. So she wrote, I believe that athletic sports have an important role at Berkeley. Our athletic program provides our student athletes the opportunity to compete at the highest level, and attending games helps build and sustain community between students and alumni. 
Unlike the earlier discussion of free speech and event politics, it's in the language of competitive sport and athletic spectatorship that is the only mention she's made of the importance of staging unified sentiment, linking donors and future recipients. Neil Turnus has written a piece on militarization and intercollegiate athletics that culminates in an argument about the commodification of military spectacle at Texas A&M that implicates members of the university. Another short paragraph on free speech in the article, in the email, says nothing about academic freedom and the knowledge about race, religion, sexuality, gender, and disability that has been produced on our very campus um, and instead attended only to revising our policy for hosting some neutral group of speakers. And she ended the email with, thank you for reading this update and go bears. That wincing avoidance of the substance of knowledge and its displacement to the sentimental energies of sports is perhaps motivated by a sensitivity to offending donor capital, um, but also undoubtedly presumes that to name certain kinds of scholarship produced at our very university, such as that about Islamophobia, is to appear biased. What could be a greater perversion of free speech than a fear of inviting all to benefit from the knowledge generated by your own campus on capitalism, ableism, patriarchy, Islamophobia, that is presumably part of your champion, championing of the selectively ranked number one public university in the world, whatever that means, um, as even the public sphere of the university shrinks down ever further. And I'll take this assessment of displacement a bit further. Recently, our chancellor, um, along with our vice chancellor for equity and inclusion, sent an email to the campus that named some of the attacks on people what, uh, in, in what she called our community, naming um, black African-American, um, Chicanx, Latinx, Native American, LGBTQ, undocumented, Muslim, Jewish. Um, there's more to say about that list, but notably the list did not include feminists. This was a stunning isolation of certain expressions of vilification considered effectively empty and others considered contentful, somehow epistemologically contentful. This is only the latest evidence of what we could in fact call a trivialization of feminism operating hand in hand with a further trivializing consolidation of effective politics around all aggrieved parties such that is individuals who are threatened and likely to feel bad or feel injured to which the answer would be something like patting on the back or calming down. A few weeks ago, I was invited to serve on the second Chancellor's Faculty Forum, the first consider, uh, considering the legal ramifications of free speech and the First Amendment, and the second one on healing and harmful speech and its impact on individuals and communities. Of course, having been trained as a sociocultural linguist, I had plenty to say about injurious speech, but I also despised this compartmentalization. In accountings like this, race arguably becomes not an analytic, but a place taker for individuated vulnerability, dependency, and weakness, ready for a voluntary but not obligatory politics of sympathy. It's a cynical and reductive redeployment of what Wendy Brown has observed as the understanding of certain political efforts linked to identities as being founded dangerously in woundedness. The construction of mental health, problematic, medicalized, and selective as it is, is also evidence of a campus's attention or lack of attention to disability. And I should say that disability has been itself colonized by a set of bureaucratic values on my campus. In our case, it was such that funding for those functions, the support for students who were verbally and otherwise attacked, did not increase, even as police were brought in to the tune of more than $500,000. 
this militarized surge, if you will, of campus monies and contracted police was seen as a strategic victory in stopping fascist energies. And I will note that not only feminism but disabilities due to the sectioning, normalizing, and displacing technology of the structure of a list also were nowhere to be seen in the list of those attacked. This is not to decry the prominence of who appeared first or second or third on that list, but to highlight not only the resilience of divide and conquer strategies, but the institutional productivity of an avowed ignorance of the intersectionalities or the layerings of sociopolitical being that both inform and populate structures of violence so that something like debility cannot be imaginable. That avowed ignorance contributes within the university to the production the continued production of debility, and furthermore, to the production of ignorances attached to that production. Two minutes, huh? I see, it never works out. Um, okay, so um, I turned this into a teaching opportunity um, for my class, um, refusing the question of sort of, do I stay tough and go on as planned, or do I actually respond to this interruption? Um, uh, um, much as I want to preserve certain kinds of spaciousness for my students, the myth of the ivory tower already seems so far away to those of us who have witnessed these things, even as the ivory tower myth is at the same moment being used to deauthorize the knowledge productions of the university to see it as a frivolity, as precisely trivial. Our students know better, and if there's an affect I may own less complicatedly, it is the gratitude I feel for them that they can sustain these impossible pressures and strive forward to gather what they'll need. So back to my last emoji, the, the purple vampire, which represented for my colleague the culmination of the academic's trajectory. Um, yes, the purple vampire, I think being what I think of as a kind of expression of undercommons, queer person of color, <laughs> a counter thief of vital fluids, but also a refusal of the terms of debt, the epistemic segregation of groups, and a willingness toward disclosure and exposure. As Fred Moten writes, the undercommons is a space in which the subversive intellectual will evidently be in a position to steal. Worry about the university. This is the injunction today in the United States, one with a long history, and as he says, all of this goes on upstairs in polite company among the rational men. After all, the subversive intellectual came under false pretenses with bad documents out of love. Her labor is, a, is as necessary as it is unwelcome. The university needs what she bears but cannot bear what she brings. So there's something here about the off-wise orientation to the university. It does not suffice to make our voices heard and to dig deeper within the institutional context of an assigned employ but to divest from certain structures of the institution and to actively change how we do our work in advance of, not in response to, the coming changes handed down. This is a refusal refusalism that I think can be easily distinguished from the kinds of refusalism of the alt-right. And I think it's breaking the fantasy of a closed neutral ent entity facing the outside for reasons my colleagues have outlined. My third student, Elise Taylor, reflected the naturalization of this interior-exterior divide, and perhaps to the incorporation even of decoloniza decolonization studies to projects of whiteness when she wrote, I quote, I feel we as students at a PWI, predominantly white institution, sometimes turn to decolonizing the academy, which is important. However, recognizing the efforts of Trump, those of fascists, the efforts of this institution's capitalist state, 
are equally important as they all promote a recolonizing of the academy. See, so very often the students get it. Okay, thank you. How am I going to do a, a quick summary of that? But I'll try. Um, I think the, a few things uh, that Dr. Chen gave us to think about, and I thank you for your presentation, um, is uh, you know we, we've been thinking about the long durée, but also to think about the particular politics that are happening in very particular spaces, like uh, um, university settings, of course. But again, the difference between uh, a public institution a public university and a private one, and, and um, Dr. Smith's case in, in a seminary, you know, what are the different things that we can and can't say um, in a classroom? I think these uh, things we need to think about uh, as, we, as we have the discussion as well. Um, I think the importance of uh, thinking through affective politics and policies as well, and how they're, uh, of course, kind of linked to militarism, capitalism, and colonialism. Um, and the particular statement by the, the first student on the selective sanction um, in, of terrorism uh, and, and how we in some ways are, as uh, to use Dr. Zine's uh, term, um, embedded academics. You know, we are colluding with uh, many of these um, things. So I think that that's something to uh, give us pause. I haven't had enough time to reflect on the purple vampire emoji, so I'll, I'll, I'll get there. But um, without further ado, we have um, Dr. Chanel Smith, uh, who's uh, our next speaker. She's an uh, associate professor of New Testament and Christian origins and director of the cooperative MDiv program at Hartford Seminary in Hartford, Connecticut. She earned her doctorate in New Testament and early Christianity at Drew Univer uh, Theological School and her MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary. Her passions are teaching and mentoring the next generation of scholars and religious leaders and enhancing the status of women in the profession. Among her um, many publications are, um, either it's published or it's forthcoming, The Women, uh, the Woman Babylon and the Marks of Empire, Reading Revelation with a Post-Colonial Womanist Hermeneutics um, of Ambivalence. I got it. Welcome. <laughs> Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you again for the invitation. When number 45 was elected, my 10-year-old asked me if he was going to bring back slavery. When my beautiful black husband leaves the house, I am unable to rest easy until I hear the garage door opening indicating his return. When in the company of white folk, I introduce myself using the title doctor because I have found that it makes them pay more attention to what I have to say. When in the company of black folk, I introduce myself as Chanel, but when they find out I am a doctor, it is then that I am perceived as uppity and hence I do not understand the struggle. I speak about this duality in my book, The Woman Babylon and the Marks of Empire, reading Revelation with a post-colonial womanist hermeneutics of ambivalence. I argue that in the description and destruction of the figure of the woman Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, 
I see an image reflected of myself. A close analysis of the woman Babylon reveals my own conflicting two-sided association with empire as both a victim and a participant. This duality does not render me neutral or paralyzed, but rather compels me to action. As a victim of empire, I have been the recipient of racialized slurs and experienced the everydayness of racism in its various forms. At the same time, as a participant of empire, I also have access to certain luxury goods, higher education, healthcare, and access to resources, and a platform such as this to speak against discrimination and offer strategies based on my experience to evoke change. Being a person of color in the academy is being a person of color in these United States under a Trump presidency. Racism pervades and prevails. White decision-making power in the academy at the institutional and societal level continues to relegate the importance of issues concerning discrimination, make it difficult for persons of color to sit at the table when decisions are being made and thus further perpetuate the marginalization of persons of color. Number 45 has lessened the panic for preserving whiteness and has unleashed the ever-below-the-surface divine right for it. The racialized saga continues. In the classroom, a white woman asked me why she had to call me Dr. Smith when she can call the president another white woman by her first name. We had that conversation, but not before I got the attention of the entire class. You see, she asked her question once I began the class session. Thus, she wanted to make sure she had everyone's attention. I chuckled, said, I'm so glad you asked, and turned her question into a learning moment on the complexities of race, racism, white privilege, the interconnections of power, and how I, therefore, will do what I need to do to remind not only my students, colleagues, but also administration of the authority I not only have, but will never relent. African-American Bible scholar, Dr. Dr. Mitzi Smith. Can you hear me? It just kind of went out. African-American Bible scholar, Dr. Mitzi J. Smith, in her essay, Race, Gender, and the Politics of Sass, reading Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, through a womanist lens of intersectionality and intercontextuality, in the edited volume, Womanist Interpretations of the Bible, Expanding the Discourse, Dr. Smith rightly notes, and I quote, in a racialized society, black women are not viewed and treated as women on equal footing with white women. Black women's skin color trumps their gender. They are seen and treated as black persons first, and secondarily as flawed females inferior to white women, end quote. Now who knows if this white female student was consciously aware of this sentiment, but she definitely appeared to operate out of that notion. This is white privilege at its best. White privilege as it co-opts not only my voice in framing of the classroom space, but insists on control of the conversation, even when spaces where institutionally it is my job as the professor to frame and guide classroom discussion. When I present papers at AAR and SBL, I like to arrive early, you know, to get a feel of the room. 
As people enter, more often than not, white folk do not engage me. After making eye contact with me, they quickly look away as if their looking was a figment of my imagination. But I saw them. However, when I take my place behind the podium or next to them at the front on the panel, then and only then have I gained their attention, worthy of their conversation and collegiality, and they've gained my resentment. And I'm not interested, and I let them know. Before you go there, I am not an angry black woman. I have been, I am a black woman who has been angered by isms. Racism, sexism, ageism, classism, to name just a few. I have not stepped out of my place. I am embracing and practicing my agency, my full personhood, employing what Dr. Mitzi Smith refers to as a womanist hermeneutics of sass. She states that womanist sass is a legitimate contextual language of resistance. Sass is when the oppressed name, define, call out, and sometimes refuse to submit to oppressive systems and behavior." End quote. The way I handle the negative experiences I have described earlier are examples of me asserting my agency. My response of being angered by the isms I have experienced is sass. They are calculated and even, illustrating them as a strategy and not simply as reactionary. It is appropriate that I approach this current topic with the politics of SAS because, as Dr. Smith rightly notes, SAS is an Americanism. It is slang created in the context of a patriarchal, gendered, and racialized society. America has always been and remains a racialized, patriarchal society, end quote. And dare I say, so has and is the Academy. Yes, I dare say that. Some of the strategies that I think about, because number 45 has allowed or permitted things to happen more openly, if 45 can do it, if 45 can tweet, albeit with grammatical errors, then it's okay for the KKK to be unhooded, for a white nationalist to chant white lives matter and the Nazi slogan blood and soil in an act of, a visual, in an act of visual intimidation via a nighttime march on the Southern College campus with burning torches and still live to see another day. It is just fine for the white student to ask racialized questions in a manner that she did, for white institutions to expect me to change them without much discomfort or effort on their part, for white colleges who have the same, white colleagues who have the same letters behind their name as I do, to ignore me and deny my existence until my relocation behind the podium causes my invisible presence to materialize, my work to increase, and thus activating their voice and forgotten manners, hi, I'm not interested. So yes, since the election of number 45, the colonization of all spaces, including academic ones, have intensified. So what are we to do? Some of the strategies I use to do this work is to turn the situation, like I have with my student, into learning or pedagogical opportunities. I get actively involved with organizations who understand the complexities and effects of discrimination and are dedicated to helping people of color succeed in this racialized academy, as well as educating institutions on what a commitment to diversity really means, such as not talking about it, but adding a line item in your budget. 
This is why I'm actively involved in the Forum for Theological Exploration and the Committee on Underrepresented Racial and Ethnic Minorities in the Profession. Another strategy I would suggest is to invite colleagues of color as guest lecturers and panelists at your institutions beyond the month of February and use our work in your classes and in your publications above the footnote line. As homiletics professor Sally A. Brown said at a recent conference held at the Louisville Institute, white folk and those immersed in whiteness need the help of persons of color to see their blindness. Whiteness can see everything except itself. The last strategy I would like to offer regarding the efforts of decolonizing the academy is to stop the black-on-black -black crime that is true even for academicians. Scholars of color are sometimes harsher on other scholars of color than on their white counterparts. And white folks count on this dynamic in order to keep scholars of color fighting amongst themselves in order to keep white leaders in place. Dr. Mitzi Smith writes, colonization does not encourage unity among, among the colonized. It encourages them to guard the crumbs. The oppressed are expected to achieve wholeness on the crumbs, to be treated like the dogs in the Canaanite woman's story in the Gospel of Mark, and yet remain civil and silent, end quote. Some people are not present in this panel today because they are leaving us to ourselves. They want us to guard the crumbs. They want us to fight each other over the crumbs. In so doing, we become complicit in this academic landscape, remaining inactive and thus helping to perpetuate a systemic oppressive structure all on our own. This is how systemic racism prevails. Those in power no longer have to work to maintain it because we do it the work for them. So let's stop doing that. And instead, let us uplift each other, build each other up, especially in our scholarship, instead of tearing each other down in order to make a name for ourselves. Refer each other for the invitations we cannot accept and help with the recruiting, mentoring, and hiring efforts to bring more racial and ethnic persons to add some color into this discursive and physical cloud of whiteness. Let us not forget that the crumbs are simply the leftovers to a bigger, fresher piece of the academic pie. As an African-American female womanist scholar, this is what recolonizing the, the academy under a Trump presidency means to me. It is real, it is raw, and it is time, yet again, to remind white folk just how critical resistance is for a person of color in a white academy located in a white country with a white racist as its leader. For persons of color, its criticality is not new. It's simply Sunday. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Smith. I really appreciate uh, you not using Trump's name so much and using 45 <laughs> instead. Um, you know, your important uh, contribution right at the beginning of sharing uh, what you did about your child and your husband are extremely powerful um, in beginning with that and then sharing your own story. But um, I think often we forget the 
how personal this is. You know that our, for for many of us, the academy uh, and the personal are, are we're we're asked to be objective and we're asked to kind of keep out of the academy. But these uh, this affects our lives in many ways. So um, uh, I, I want to uh, acknowledge and appreciate uh, you beginning with that uh, as well. For for many of us, this is this is the reality we live with, right? Uh, a child asking if slavery is going to be brought back, that's pretty powerful statement. Um, I think your points also about um, acknowledging being both a victim of empire and also being a participant in empire are, are, are really welcome. And the way in which you closed as a reminder to, um, as a reminder to us that uh, often we are kept, as I mentioned before, um, many minority scholars are kept from being in conversation with each other, and it's a, it, it's a tactic, it's, a, it's, it's an intentional strategy uh, in which whiteness continues to be privileged and succeed. Um, so I really wanna thank you, and thank you also for all the um, suggestions you've made of how we can do this better in our syllabi, in our classrooms. Um, you know, if one of us can't make it, many of us can't make it to referring each other. I think these are really, really important um, suggestions. So thank you, and thank you all uh, for your contributions today. In the few minutes we have, I wanna just open it up to um, uh, very, very brief questions um, or comments that you might have, keep them brief. Um, I'll try to take a few at a time, um, and uh, if you can come to the microphones, we can uh, hear you better. Thanks for the uh, acknowledgement of the Wampanoag Nation. I appreciate that as an indigenous scholar. And my question is really um, academic in that as we're formulating our new publications and actions, um, who can we cite within religious studies or within this discourse do you think would be very helpful given that this is such a young and new sort of moment and how long it takes to put anything out? Um, is there anyone that one would recommend from anyone on the panel to cite in terms of a critique of uh, the reinvigorated uh, racism, um, sexism, you know, uh, transphobia, and so forth that's, that's reoccurring? You know, without throwing out names, I believe that you can look across, across many disciplines, right, to see who is doing the work, right? What, it's not so much, or for me, it's not important just to talk to scholars, right? You have to ask the question, so what? Why are you doing this? Is this going to change or change anything for the better for those who are being discriminated against? Um, whatever you're, what are you passionate about? Who is writing about the questions that are keeping them awake at night? Right, in order to change the issues that are happening. So whether you're talking about Bible or theology or ethics, I think there are many, many people who are doing the work. So I don't think that it's, it's right to just throw little names up because we're gonna miss a lot of people. And I'd also think that you should be interdisciplinary, right? Because even though I'm a Bible scholar, I still went to ethicists and theolo theologians in my work because it's all relevant, we are all, conversation partners. My recommendation is to go back to some of the really uh, salient classics that we have. I think uh, 
uh, W.D. Du Bois' work is still very critical. Uh, uh, going to Fanon works is critical. Also, I would say recommend some of the work that is being done in the decolonial work. Uh, so I think going back to much of the early work that has been done, and then we could look at some of the people that are taking that work and expanding on it. Because I think the moment today is not that Trump is 2016. I think we're still dealing with the residues of the Civil War. The monuments that have come up all came up in the last part of the 19th century into the 20th century. 2014, the birth of a nation was uh, played in the White House where the KKK was the guest of honors in the White House. And again, 2017, the KKK is marching in the streets and the president, number 45, Right, is saying that there are decent people among them. Right? So I think we need to look at a longer history and the issues that are being contested today are the same issues because America have not yet resolved itself to the racial paradigm and the racial matrix and there are some people they think that this country belongs to them. Unless you're Native American, this country is yours. Otherwise, everybody got their green cards just later than others. And I think what we need is to challenge this narrative taking our country back. Hey, thank you for the question. I would just add, I mean, just to reiterate what I said about decolonizing knowledge in general is to bring in the subaltern voices. Who is in our curriculum? Who are we going to center? Is it just going to be dead white men? Or are we going to make a conscious effort to make sure that the curriculum embodies, um, you know, the breadth of knowledge that is out there and that there are other ways of knowing and being within uh, the world and within the academy that need to be, to be centered? And this isn't a new conversation. I mean, this is something that is a perennial uh, issue. It didn't begin with the election of Trump and it won't end afterwards. So it is something that we need to continue to um, look at in terms of how our curriculum is shaped. Are we um, continuing to perpetuate Eurocentrism? You know, we need to really dismantle Eurocentrism. And that means, you know, moving it aside to make room for other ways of knowing, not to completely eradicate the canon, but to make room for other centers of knowledge as part of a plural center in education, part of a multicentric focus. All too often the attempt is to create, you have this hegemonic Eurocentric system and then you add in, you have, you have Black History Month, you have you know, Islamic History Month, you have multicultural days, things like that are popular even in schools. And uh, I think you know, there's that, that saying that, well, you know, um, Black History Month is over and White History Year resumes, mm -hmm. right? So that you have this continuation that is just punctuated by these moments of intervention around particular racialized knowledges and identities and we need to really radically rethink uh, education in order to know, to envision uh, what it would look like to have multiple centers of knowledge that we can all draw from. Otherwise, we leave out so much a part of um, other histories, other knowledges, and we're drawing from this one well of Eurocentric knowledge. And so I think that's something that we really uh, need to focus on in terms of decolonizing curriculum. So there's many people that can be plugged into that, but that, to me, it's the framework that we start with. Thanks for your question. I I would just add uh, to, to, to that comment just that I, I heard in your question a recognition of the slowness of academic publication. And so a, a kind of, you, you actually embedded in there a kind of critique of the lag time of the generation of certain kinds of authorized knowledge. And so um, there's a kind of refusal I'm thinking about which would be to reject the the narrow field 
right, of knowledges that have been produced within these regimes of mutually held authority um, and, and to really take seriously the kinds of knowledges that are produced outside of the academy. And that could include something like this thing that is still given a lot of dubious um, credit, right, the internet, um, um, which is a place that, that is doing a lot of um, very uh, on, at the moment, analysis of, of what's happening and connecting it to some of these, precisely these classics, right, um, that, that Hatem mentioned. Microphone. Thank you. Thank you very much for really powerful and potent remarks. I'd like to ask you to think about a theme that I heard in a number of your remarks about the precariousness of our bodies and minds in this particular moment. And I think I sometimes feel a tendency among us, especially as academics, to regard bodies and minds under siege as a sort of perennial state, just one of the background costs that we accept as part of our experience in the academy or experience in the modern world. And I'm wondering if you could talk about ways to resist or to strategize around or imagine a different kind of future in which we both believe and make a world in which body and mind is centered, loved, cared for, tended, and nurtured, rather than relegated to the collateral costs of scholarship. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for that thoughtful question. Um, this idea of being under siege has so much become an ontological status and reality. And when I hear your question, it makes me think about the body-mind, but also what's happened to the spirit. Because so much of the kinds of colonial uh, injury has been a form of spirit injury, and those legacies continue. Uh, and how do we nurture that part of ourselves that can be resilient and, and, and resistant to that uh, kind of assault that is every day, that is um, you know, continual in different spaces, but also reconstituted in, in the work that we do in the academy. And so um, I don't have a, you know, a, a, a clear answer for that, but I think it is something that we are, have to be attentive to and mindful to as well. Because there's always a part of yourself that you have to leave if you are someone who is spiritually focused in some form. You have to kind of leave that at the door a lot of the times in the academy. It's not something you can bring in. It's not something that's part of what is valued or recognized or even understood as something that goes hand in hand with the work you do and the kind of um, you know scholar or activist or um, human that you want to be. And so that kind of erasure and, and compartmentalizing is sort of what academia tends to do. You know, your body's here, your mind is here, and the spirit well should just remain outside the door. And so I think that idea of holism is important in terms of our practice and for our students as well. How do we honor the bodies that come into our classroom, the diverse bodies? How do we honor the, the spirituality that they bring and see them as whole subjects that involve that spirit? And that's something I've been doing a lot more and thinking a lot more in my own educational praxis. Uh, in terms of how we do that um, and how we honor that and the different locations that our students embody and bring in. And it does, again, mean a lot of radical rethinking of how we deliver education and how we go about this particular project. So thank you.
Hearing Dr. Zane's response, thank you for that, is making me think of um, self-care, right? Because there are so, I think self-care is a mode of resistance towards all of the pressures and minoritized taxation on people of color or persons of color or disabled bodies, that it's important that we insert ourselves in our academic calendars. It is important to put our names down as an immovable meeting. Right? I'm not even going to tell you the type of meetings I have on my calendar. This is probably going to be recorded, but they know anyway. <laughs> but it's important. It's important to realize that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't do the work. Right? But the academy and the unspoken pressure is that you need to publish or perish. You need to be great at not only advising, but attending meetings and writing and teaching, and whether it's online and or interviewing and running committees, all of that you're supposed to be great at. Nothing is supposed to fall by the wayside. And notice I didn't even mention family or life happening, right? So I think a form of resistance, going with what you said, Dr. Zine, is to take self-care seriously and to insert it intentionally within your own academic um, priorities as well as any type of um, calendars that you, that you place for yourself in terms of your work pipeline. moderator's prerogative to respond to Dr. Julia. Um, you know, I, it, your question also made me think of, uh, I mean, the precarity of life does many things. I mean, if you look at Judith Butler's work, of course, Frames mm -hmm. of War and Precarious Life, um, you know, it raises questions about also uh, minority scholars should be able to do the thinking as well, right? So uh, we often are known to do the activist work or are expected of us <laughs> to do the activist work. Um, uh, but the, um, uh, to be able to reflect and think and to theorize is also um, a kind of being and acting that is often not permitted, right? So um, uh, everything from thinking through, you know, how we think about the precarity of our lives in terms of all our humanness in the Anthropocene in uh, how we relate to animals and the environment. Um, I mean, I think this is, this is part of the work. This is part of what uh, Arjuna Padurai calls the imagination as social practice, as a form of being in the world, right? Um, and I, I think about uh, what some of the things we've heard on the panel is, you know, um, that we all come with particular kinds of histories and experiences, right? But there's something shared in all of that as well. So there's al always, as um, Dr. Chen put it, you know, there's a sense of consensus that we try to move uh, towards, but that consensus also marks a certain kind of erasure. Um, that's what we kind of have to be careful about in, in this kind of precarity, right? Because um, there's a lot of like, well, if black lives matter, then white lives matter too, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that going on. So we need to think of that in, in, in the context of power and humanity, but, d but consider the particular histories that people come from as well. So that might be another way of uh, addressing what, what you raised as well. Other questions? We have one minute. Yeah. No? We started 5.10. Okay. Can I just make a quick Last, comment? Yeah, sure. Sure. You're there. Yeah. In, in regards to uh, committee, committee work a little bit, I wanted to follow up on your point here. Uh, in my home institution, one of the things that uh, I was the uh, co-convener for Faculty Color Caucus in our uh, faculty constitution, we um, have a number of different caucuses, including including one for women, faculty of color, and, and et cetera. 
But um, one of the things that we've been noticing in our work is that women and people of color do the disproportionate work of committee work at the university. And a lot of the older white males are just totally absent from any kind of faculty governance. Um, so, but in my mind that creates, you know, it's a problem on the one hand, but it also presents an opportunity. So in trying to strategize for ways to, for, for minorities and other folks to succeed in the academy, we can think about taking advantage of that actually. Most people are lazy. Most people are apathetic. They don't want to get involved. That creates an opportunity for activists like us. So one of the things I'm, like for example, the, the conveners of the faculty, uh, of the different um, caucuses that are at our school never got together mm -hmm. to talk about things and strategize before I became the co-convener conven of the faculty color caucus and got them together. I said, let's start strategizing. We can take over this university. <laughs> okay, on that note. You know? uh, <laughs> so yeah, so that's what I'm telling people. Organize, Organize. get active, and take advantage of the apathy of people by being active yourself. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Um, any closing comments from the, from the plenary? Thank you for your comments. Yeah. I think we have to assess the university as a structure at least I know for Berkeley, I know the statistics there very clearly. 87% uh, of our tenured faculty are white. 78% of them are white male. If you remove ethnic studies and EECS, for those who don't know what EECS is, Electronic Engineering Computer Science, where you have a high cluster of faculty of color, uh, a large number of Asian Americans, as well as uh, other uh, faculty of color, if you remove those two departments, the tenured faculty ranks at Berkeley will be 94% white. Okay? The, if you remember affirmative action only was uh, without any intrusion between 1964 and 1979 with the Baki decision, which means that only 14 years that we had faculty of color being able to actually have access to the university and unintruded by taking our country back. So the taking our country back began in earnest immediately after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Another fact, since 1964, no Democratic president has won the majority white vote in America. Clinton wanted to go after Reagan Democrats and just got us closer to be Republican light. And Republican light is Republican. We just not need to forget that fact. So pursuing, trying to be similar to the right wing got us into really having almost no differentiated character in relation to our political elite. And that's why we lost the grassroots, we lost the working class. For somebody to be actually having a gold bathroom to be posited as the hero of the middle and working class should be something for people to reflect and go possibly to a 12-step program to realize what is happening. Yeah. And I think that was a long process that got us into the current state, and I think we need to critique it and to, to do structural changes in order to bring about fundamental change at the university as well as society in general. Um, I guess just to add to that is one of the structural issues also framing universities 
um, is neoliberalism, and I think that we need to look at the st what that has meant for the academy in terms of uh, really creating a, situ a situation where it is not good pedagogy that matters, but the bottom line, and that will always underwrite this sort of colonial impetus of, of the university. And just the final thought, too, is around uh, allyship. And, you know, we talk about decolonizing, and we're speaking here as a panel of people of color. That doesn't mean that that work is on the backs of people of color uh, in academia or other marginalized bodies to do this work. And I think it is very, very important for the dominant bodies, for white uh, allies, to um, be part of that struggle and to not do it through learning off the backs of others, but to take, uh, do their homework and to work uh, in solidarity with uh, others because because this isn't something that should just happen on the backs of the marginalized uh, uh, in the university settings or elsewhere. Thanks. Anyone else want to? There's a lot of work still to be done. Um, I think the, the, the only thing I would say is that, as the title suggests, recolonization of the academy under a Trump presidency suggests that some form of decolonization has happened. Mm -hmm. It hasn't, you know? So I just hope that we all just do the work and be committed to it and not just be about talk, but really be about the action and not let whatever you have to contribute to this conversation and to the cause to stay within your scholarship and talk to each other, but help it grow legs and actually do something. Thank you. I wanna thank um, all of you for coming here. I wanna thank the four status committees of the AAR and especially our panelists, thank you. Thank you.